Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. And now, here's this week's guest. Hi, Dr. Florian. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for the invite. Oh, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's not every day that I speak to a neurosurgeon and not a neurologist. This is an important distinction. <laughs> Indeed. So um, so we actually we have the, the honor, and this is something very unique, to be allowed to touch a brain, see a brain, and, and then work on the brain. So this is a this is a, a something you have to... Uh, praise yourself every day that you're allowed to do this. This is amazing. And and what made you want to go into this line of work? What gave you the bravery? So it's, and, and again, it's not about the bravery. It's like it, it's a slope you s- slowly get into as a medical student, right? You go to one of those boards and, and, and pick one of those open uh, research projects on a brain, but it's not a human brain or it's not a live human brain, but you slowly get into into this area of work. And then you develop more expertise than the average, of course. And then you do your first electives, you do your internships, and then you apply for for jobs. And of course, you're already biased into that area. And then, then, um, you know, the jobs, the offers you get are in in the brain area. And then if you find out you have the technical skills and and you are um, adventurous enough, and innovative enough to go into that subject that it's not only enough for you to diagnose, but you want to really treat, and then your surgery is the right thing for you to do. Yeah, I guess it's like a pilot. You know, none of us can imagine flying a plane, but they ramp up to it. They just don't fly a you plane. You do. And, and, and the, the next question everybody's going to ask, so how is the first surgery? And again, it's slowly progressing into that field. It's not like at one point uh, somebody is telling you, now you have to do it, and, and you start from scratch. It's this... And, and we always say like there's so many steps involved in the surgical procedure that if you don't know step number one, which is actually the right indication to do a surgery, the second step is what type of surgery. The third step would be how do I position this patient to have the best access to the brain? So if those steps are not really followed, then you're going to be a bad brain surgeon, right, even before touching the knife. Because this is so important, right, that you understand, right, when is the right time and what is the right indication and what is the right patient to do that, right? And then slowly, you need a mentor for sure. There's no, there's no residence program which is, has the best fit or something. You need a mentor who's, who's with you, who's guiding you, who's showing you all these little things. And then it's a very natural progression. You, you never have the feeling, oh, this is the first time I'm doing something because you've done it for many years already. But at one point, yes, you take the responsibility to do it on your own, but you, it doesn't feel like that, right? Because you've mm-hmm. done it so many times already. It feels like you've done it many times. That's comforting. What do you want people to know? Like, what do you think people need to know about their brain from your perspective that they don't always get? Yeah. 
So, so I think what is very important in our in our job is to make patients understand if you have a condition in the brain, it's it's very hard for you to imagine because you don't see it, right? If you have a broken bone, if you have, uh, you know, if 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 you walk the stairs and you you don't have get enough oxygen, you have a heart condition. Um, if you have abdominal problems because of your gut moving not the right way, you immediately feel this, right? And and you can actually sometimes visualize it, right? If if you're limping or uh, you know if if you have a spine problem, it's it's something everybody even with with no medical knowledge does understand. Brain conditions are very very different because in many times patients have hardly any symptoms as incidental findings of, of benign conditions which sitting there for many, many years and which might get the patients into trouble if you don't treat them. So it's more like an adjuvant, the proactive treatment to avoid something worsening in the future. But that is very difficult for somebody to understand if he feels totally healthy, his memory is okay, his emotions okay, his decision making and then a brain surgeon is telling you well that can get you know the wrong way uh, pretty soon uh, and there's a risk if you don't treat it that this this thing can happen but there's also risk if you treat it right because any of our treatment can actually have the same consequences than the natural history of the condition so i think uh, it it requires a very strong relationship between us and the patients a lot of trust Right. That we don't over indicate and say you have to do it just because I have another surgery or I have a financial incentive. That is really a very strong trust and bond right between me and the patient. And I, I, I tell you, I have many patients I follow for 20, 25 years now. Right. Even though I'm working in the UAE, I still get my patients from from Germany, from the UK, wherever I work who still follow up with me, sending me their follow-up uh, images of the brain because they wouldn't trust anyone else. They have a strong relationship, and I do have also. Okay. What's the most interesting surgery you've done in your career so far? Yeah, so it, it's not easy. They all, they all uh, are beautiful. Most of them are really, really beautiful for us to, to do because they're so individual, and, and every case is so different. It, it's because of the age. It's because of the texture, about the specific challenges on that specific day. But I think uh, the first awake brain surgery we did was something very special, right? So when the patient is communicating with you and talking to you while you do surgery in his brain, and that is something, it, it, it is really something very rewarding to, uh, to, to yourself, right, at the end of the day. Do the, you don't always have to be awake. What situations, uh, we see this a lot on TV and the movies, yes. but what are the situations where you do need to be awake? Yes. So we have many, so many functions in the brain we can observe when the patient is sleeping, actually, like motor function or sensory function. We can, for example, we can observe the hearing. We can, like, the hearing nerve gives electrical input. So we, we can observe all of these things while somebody is sleeping. So we have full control of, of the functions. But language, for example, is something, of course, we cannot control or emotions or memory. So when we have a condition in the brain, which requires that we have to work in close proximity to that area, to the language area, 
then we offer the patient to be awake because nothing is better than talking to a patient, giving him tasks, right? That we know exactly the limits of, of our resection of our working space in the brain. Because when you look at the brain, it, it, it doesn't, you don't see the function, right? The brain looks beautiful, but it's, it's, it has the different gyri and, you know, the different surface, but it doesn't show us exactly where the function is. Right. It, it can move around. Some patients have a larger language area. If they speak two or three languages, they can be uh, uh, represented bilaterally in both sides of the brain. So we do some testing before with specific images to know where the language is. And when we identify this on the images, then we offer the patient to have an awake surgery, which is much safer for the patient. Oh, my gosh. So you're telling me if patients speak multiple languages, which we see all the time in this region, that yes. they actually have a larger area in, yes. in their brain and it can be on both sides where normally if you just speak one, it's on one side. That's correct. And, so, and it really depends. And if these are two mother tongues, so if, the, for example, the patient grew up bilingual with both parents speaking different languages to them, then most likely it's on the same area. Uh, but it can it's not overlapping 100 percent. It might be a little bit off. Um, if a patient learns a second or third language later on, when the language area of the brain is developed already by the age of three or four, then it can switch actually to the opposite side. And then you have a bilateral representation. And then uh, for the second language or the third language. So all these things we have to establish. And and unfortunately, the, the Arabic uh, language in science is or neuroscience is underrepresented, although it's been spoken by, what, 700 million people. But so all the tests we have and all these uh, the diagnostic tools we have are just based on English, basically, maybe even German, French. But that's it. So with the NYU in Abu Dhabi, we established a protocol to really diagnose with a with an MRI scanner based on we diagnose, we established a test, a language test based on Arabic. So it's val validated for Arabic language, first time in the world, which really gives us um, an idea about the Arabic language, right? Because if you just test somebody in English, although he's native Arabic, uh, that, that doesn't give you the true picture. So these are also small details we need to know. So what did you find out when you developed that with NYU? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, so so we basically they they did a study with their students, native Arabic speakers, and so we have a baseline of a functional MRI where we see basically on the images activity when we activate the language, and then you see if you expose these healthy objects basically if you expose them with an Arabic language or the standard English testing, which is validated and used in the neuroscience community across the world, there is some discrepancies. So it's much safer if you have a patient to use the validated Arabic t language test than the, the, the English one, right? And we had some patients who don't speak English, right? So, so uh, you have to, you have to basically create a, an Arabic standard uh, uh, test armamentarium, right? And, and yeah, and Sorry. there's one more funny thing, right? So, yeah. so sometimes we do visual recognition in the OR, right? We show them pictures, right, of a house, of a dog, of something. So, but there's, and this is again standardized across the world. But there's some signs which, are, if you have somebody who comes, let's say, from the mountain area in in the UAE, more rural, right? Some of these signs or, or, or uh, symbols 
they don't know because culturally they've never been exposed right to a lion or something and then they might not even know that so even this these visual perceptions you have to adjust to the cultural environment right you have to show a camel or 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 whatever it takes right just to adjust it so it's culturally appropriate Right, because if you were testing him, you'd be like, he doesn't know what a lion is. There's something wrong. When really, exactly, and then they they don't answer, and they say no, and you think it's it's a positive sign, but in in fact, he you know he has no language problems. He just doesn't know what the sign means, right? So big difference. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't think about how behind uh, medicine is in this regard in recognizing and how standardized it is for the Western world and how exactly. ill-equipped it is to deal with the other. And and this is why I think I believe the the Cleveland Clinic here in Abu Dhabi has the unique chance, right, to bring the medicine not only from from the technical skills or something, but from the from the academics really to ramp up. We have all the opportunities. We have great universities around us, whether it's NYUAD or the Khalifa University, who have this academic interest to and and identify the gaps already in neuroscience, right? So and we have the clinical expertise. So that's a very good combination over the next years to bring this to the international level here. Yeah, and to lead the region, this is needed across yeah, the entire region. So when you're talking about that language, it makes me think, okay, so what about mathematics or science or people who are trained in those things? Are those things you can see in the brain as well? Yes, yes, and we had a, and this is actually the case I was talking about. So we did surgery on a young professor at the NYU. So she was actually leading the lab, and then she had headaches, and it turned out she had a had a benign brain tumor, but she needed resection. And then she volunteered uh, to do this awake because it is in her language and calculation area. So less language, more calculation and, and visual, uh, the, the visual, the, the spatial uh, orientation. So and for somebody who's researcher and doing a lot of statistics, obviously, arithmetic is very important. Right. So. um but then we had to bring this to the next level, right? With somebody who has an IQ above 130, obviously counting 100 minus 7 is, is not appropriate. It's not enough, right? You need to really challenge someone. So we had actually a, a very competitive discussion in the OR about her research projects with the help of a statistician who was in the room because I couldn't compete with them, right? That's above my level. But um, that was very important to really identify the area which is uh, which is responsible for her bringing the calculations together. Right. Wow. Well, we're hearing a lot about dementia and Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. And it is set to explode in this region for many, many reasons, including, you know, an aging population. Um, But can you just talk a little bit about from your perspective what that looks like in the brain and what you're finding and seeing? Yes. So, um, what? And, and you're completely right. So there are many reasons why in the in the Middle East there's a significant increase in dementia. Uh, that has lifestyle issues and the aging population, as you as you just said. Um, now we face a, a dilemma because there are multiple reasons for dementia, and th- this has. Uh, um, Let's say vascular reasons like the there's not enough blood flow to the brain or poor blood flow to the brain. This can have uh, genetic reasons like there's a lot of cosanguinity in this in this region. And um, so, first of all, for us, dementia need to be diagnosed with a very good neuropsychological profiling to figure out what areas of cognition are really impaired. 
right? Most of the time, it's not a global impairment. It's just the focal impairment of some areas. And then you need to bring this in, 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 into a morphology, right? That means we need to do some imaging and, and not only the morphology to see if there's some, some shrinking or we call it atrophy of the brain. There's, this is basically the volume of the brain reduces. Then you have an idea if this is more in some specific areas or like a global atrophy um, um, or in addition to that, we can do functional imaging about how active are certain areas of the brain in terms of, you know, their metabolism, right? These are specific images we can do here at the clinic where we look, for example, how much glucose that part of the brain is utilizing. And that gives us an example and an, an idea of how active that part of the brain is. And, and that doesn't help us with treatment. It's just about diagnosing because patients or family members just want to know the prognosis and what are we dealing with, right? How fast is this progressing? So all these diagnostics for us is just to have an idea of framework in, in which area of dementia we have to put the patient in and then how are we going to treat them best. So for now, it's just symptomatic treatment. There's no, there's no cure and there's no medicine which can can slow down the dementia, right? All these medicines which have been um, pushed from the from the pharmacy industry in the United States, they all failed in clinical applications. And, and just recently, there was this this very you know uh, OVOC infusion for uh, Alzheimer patients, uh, and that was even administered in the UAE. And then the FDA just recalled this medicine because there was no benefit at all. So, so basically it's symptomatic treatment, which means you need to do, you know, brain training. You need to Im improve your blood flow to the brain. There needs to be a, a lot of exercises for the brain, right? Uh, sensory input. And this is a continuous process, right? Where the family members have to help as well, right? So if somebody is, 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 is patients with dementia, they get often very lethargic. They're not proactive. So you need, we need to push them. Um, yeah. That's, that's what about food and movement when you because I think we get people get this impression that if they're diagnosed with dementia, it's just a downward slope. And yes. you're saying there's some things you can do. But what about food and movement? Are you are you using those to help prevent yes, the, or slow the decline? Yes, and we have a specific subsection now in, in neurology. This is a, a trend over the last years, which is called precision or, or integrative neurology, precision medicine or functional neurology, which looks exactly at these details, right? They look at all the laboratory markers and, and the diets of the patient, bringing everything together with all the diagnostics we have and then optimize, you know, uh, healthy living, basically. And uh, it, there's um, a lot of unknowns, what we don't know yet, but it seems very promising way uh, to look at, right? That uh, with simple measures uh, by yourself, uh, you can improve your your healthy lifestyle and 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 prolong or slow down that that progression. Awesome. The, yeah, go ahead. No, go. You go ahead. No, so so the Cleveland Clinic in the United States they just launched a huge longitudinal study for two hundred thousand patients, and and that's a that's a major project undertaking. That's going to take ten twenty years basically. So they have. They select it and you, you can apply as a, as a normal human being. You can apply to be part of that study. And that requires that you routinely every six months, you 
you undergo a lot of these diagnostic tests, right? And because what we want to find out is, is there any way with artificial intelligence software, for example, that if we have this data compiled over 20 years over your life, can we identify these neurodegenerative disorders much earlier than before any neurological symptoms appear, which is very important because the moment you have a cognitive decline and then you see already the footprint of this disease in the brain and it's kind of too late because there's no regeneration in the brain. You can only stop the progression in the best case scenario. But what if we would be able to identify very early that you have a combination of parameters which points towards a dementia progress in 10 years, then you can basically intervene with lifestyle changes and potential medications or whatever uh, um, uh, procedures. You can intervene before these degenerative process happens. So that's the, basically the goal of this huge study. And with 200,000 uh, human beings involved, that's, that's a lot of data, very promising. Well, I've heard actually a doctor in the States say recommend getting a cognoscopy and he calls it a cognoscopy. You know, it's like the brain version of a colonoscopy. But yeah. where you just get a series of tests to see where you're at, including a scan. Do you, yeah. do, you do anything like that at Cleveland Clinic? No, no, we don't. Because the, the value of these of these um, uh, checks, these brain checks is very low because you have to put it in, in, in together with many other diagnostics. And it's just a screenshot of like. Today you have this situation and even if you do it again in a year or two, doesn't mean anything, right? We have no prognostic considerations to give right now. And uh, it, it's just like we need this data set of like 200,000 patients over 10 years at least to identify a possible relationship of some of these uh, you know, findings and compared to the overall life. Right. But we should also know, right, that this push, puts a burden on the patient. Right. So imagine in 10 years from now, you have these prognostic in indicators. You're super healthy, midterm career, high performer. And then somebody is telling you based on your tests, right, that you have a 90 percent probability that you develop dementia in 10 years. That's a, a, that's a problem for, you know, health insurance on the free market. Right. So if you have to change your health insurance for whatever reasons, is this a precondition already? Yes. And second, so I don't want to know, right? I don't want to know sometimes what happens with me in 10 years, right? If we talk about cancer screening, which you can prevent then, that's another thing. But neurodegenerative disorders like dementia, which you can't treat, you don't want to know now. It's a right? good point. That's a really good point. Just act like maybe it's going to happen and do everything you can so it doesn't yes, happen. Yes, exactly. Um, at my age, I'm 52, 53, there's a lot of talk about the, the preponderance of women who have dementia and Alzheimer's, and it's, I think, two-thirds of the cases in some parts of the world, and how this is connected or they're trying to connect it or could be connected to um, the decline in estrogen that happens at midlife. Do you, have you seen that or do you know anything? Can you speak on that at all? So I don't think I can I can speak on that in detail. But um, yes, we are aware that females uh, are at higher risk for several types of dementia. Uh, and um, the, the major difference to 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 men is basically the change in the hormonal system in 
many circles over the lifetime of a woman, right? So, so for sure, that's the first thing as a researcher to go into that area to check, right? Because all the other variables are more or less same, right? In terms of lifestyle, overweight, vascular disorders and cancer and so on. So the only difference basically is, is the hormonal status. So it would make sense to look at that. Okay. So let's move to, um, I guess, more scary things. Everyone's often scared of getting a brain tumor. I've had a brain tumor in my own family, and I can very frequently convince myself I have a brain tumor. Um, and But it's a reality for a lot of people. So can you sort of talk to us about what kind of brain tumors you see, how common this really is, how infrequent it really is, yeah. and then we can go from there. Yeah, no, we, we, we should discuss this. And so first of all, luckily it's rare. So, so when you look at the different types of brain tumors, everything between five and 10 in a hundred thousand people get a brain tumor, right? In, in kids in the pediatric population, it's unfortunately more frequent. And then they're more malignant. They're more fast growing. But like in, in life, everything which is more aggressive and fast growing can be treated better with medicine and radiation. So, so that's the, the, the upside, right? So nowadays, the more malignant tumors are, the better you can treat them, at least in the pediatric population. When it comes to, to adults, um, we have to distinguish between two completely different subtypes of tumors. One is a real brain tumor, which grows within the brain tissue. And these are, uh, these are complex in our sense as there's no there's no line between or there's no border between the brain and the tumor because they grow outside inside the brain tissue and there's this transition into healthy brain. There's no sharp border or line in between. So that makes a complete resection difficult. You can imagine if you if you work in the abdomen and the guts, right, and you have some type of cancer there, there's always this 10 centimeter distance where you can cut out and you have a safety margin for cancer, which in the brain, for many obvious reasons, you have, you don't have, right? So you go as far as possible to the limits into the healthy brain, sometimes awake, as we discussed already, but many other functions. So there's always this balance between the oncological needs to take out as much as possible. On the other hand, the functional needs that you, you know, don't take more out as, as uh, allowed, right? Because the overall goal is quality of life. It's very clear, right? If somebody's life expectancy is 10, 15 years after a resection of a tumor, you don't want him to be disabled the next 15 years. So you have to limit yourself with a resection as far as you can go, uh, preserve quality of life and function, but at the same time have a good balance with the oncological needs, right? So, so these are the two brain tumors. The other part of tumors, they are within the skull, but outside the brain. They're sitting basically between the bone and the brain, which are most often benign, slow growing, but they have completely different challenges between, they sit between the brain and the skull where all the vessels and the cranial nerves are running. Now you have to peel them out around these vessels, around these nerves, and this is even more challenging than the other part. So, so they are they're kind of distinct difference. Do you see brain tumors from mobile phone use on the side no. of? No, that's one of those you know urban legends and myths. Like there's there's very clear data that there's there's no relationship at all to the use of mobile phone uh, 
at all. So whatever you read, this is this is very clearly scientifically proven. So safe. I don't don't tell this to the young generation, but it's safe. Yeah, you don't see. You know, I've heard. Oh, they're always on the right side when you're talking on the phone. That's where yeah, the no. are. Not no. at all. No, no, not at all. Because you know the 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 frequency and the 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 power of 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 the the mobile phone is so low, right? It doesn't increase the temperature of the brain, not even by centi uh, uh, temperature measures. So there's no there's there's no way you're going to affect the brain. Okay. What kind of surgeries do you do here that you didn't? Where did you practice before? I practiced in Germany actually most of my life, and uh, I had a time a fellowship in in the UK and in the US. But actually, 20 years in Germany, and now I'm here for 10 years. And what we see here, and that's the, the the mission we have, right? Is is the high complexity. So there's a lot of good neurosurgeons in the country who take care of the the day to day business. But the high complexity in the past used to travel or had to travel abroad to seek uh, medical care. And that was my task when I came here to set up a department and later on institute to have the same quality of care uh, than in any other Western university hospital. So so the referrals we get from the government or from the other hospitals are the, you know, kind of very complex cases, which otherwise would have traveled. And do you see differences between, we have so many nationalities here, right? I'm always yes. interested in seeing the differences yes. in regions. Could you see differences in problems between those nationalities? Yes, we do see. So the East East Asian population has a higher uh, genetic incidence of vascular malformations in the brain brain at young age. So uh, unfortunately, those don't show up unless they they have a problem. Like when they bleed, these vascular malformations, then they come with a stroke. So we see this very often. And then in the local population, you have a lot of genetic disorders, which uh, can create most awfully benign, but, you know, brain tumors in, 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 in several appearances. So, so that's the difference. Okay. What's important for people to know in acute situations like stroke and aneurysms and that kind of thing? Yes. Yes. So that's about the, the, the health care literacy, right? That you educate the population about the signs of, of a stroke or the signs of increased pressure in the brain that, that is a timely manner, right? You have to act immediately. You have to identify these symptoms and, and then, you know, bring the patient or call someone to pick up the patient to a, you know, tertiary or quaternary facility who can diagnose and take care of them. So there's a lot of education needed to create awareness of those, you know, symptoms. What is um, what's the technical advances that people should know about that are happening here now at, at Cleveland yes. Clinic Abu Dhabi that uh, are new and interesting? So, so and it brings me back to what we discussed before, that you need to have the balance between the oncological needs, take out as much as possible to have a better prognosis in the long term and the quality of life that you take only as much as allowed <coughs> for to preserve function. So now with all the tools and equipment we have in the OR, we can, we can push the limits, right? In, 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 you know, getting as much out without harming the brain. And these are all different types of equipment. I, I can mention a few like navigation system where all the instruments we're using are navigated with a, with a, with a, with a computer in the OR so that we can, can go around with the instruments to the cavity of the resection that we know always where we are and how deep we can go. 
And then we have like functional mapping where we can stimulate the brain in the depth and on the surface to know about function, right? Like the motor tracts where the, the movement of arms and legs are situated. It doesn't show, right? The brain has the same color in the depth and on the surface. And we don't know when the important fiber tracks are, are, are running, right? We have an, an, ad, an anatomical idea, but the functional reality might be shifted a few millimeters. And then we can stimulate in the depth with electric currency and get a feedback about how far we are away from these, from these uh, structures. And then we have special dye. The patient can drink a couple of hours before surgery and that dye basically accumulates in only in the tumor, not in the brain. And then on the microscope in the OR, you have a specific filter which let this dye glow. Right. So you have a special color of the tumor compared to the brain. And that, again, helps us to delineate the, the borders much better. And so with all these tools we have, we can we can really push the limits to have a 98, 99 percent resection of brain tumors. Uh, and, and then afterwards, when we have the final diagnosis and looked at the tissue in detail, uh, the adjuvant therapies which might be needed, like chemotherapy or radiation therapy, has a much better chance, right? Because if, if only there's 1% remaining tissue, then of course the prognosis in treating these remaining 1% of cells is much better than you leave 10%. Do you do robotic surgery in, on the brain? So we, we, yes, we have robotic support. So there's no robot uh, in the world which takes over or is executing something. All the robots we have in uh, in in medicine, actually, not only in neuro, is is helping us to guide ourselves, right? To have a higher precision and to to take away the or to improve the dexterity. But they will never take over or do decision making. So the robot we have is good for precision. For example, we take a biopsy in the depth of the brain or we pay, uh, place a stimulator in the depth of the brain. We have a sub-millimeter precision with a robotic guiding us to the target with no deviation. And that's certainly an improvement. And then we, when we talk about spine surgery, placement of implants like the screws, you have like 98, 99% accuracy compared to what, 80, 85% if you do this freehand. So, yes, they, we have robotic techniques and they're here really to help uh, precision and dexterity. Okay. Okay, last question. What drives you nuts that people do to their brain that you wish they wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. <laughs> so, no, I have to start uh, with an observation over my 25 years, right, that you can, if you open a brain on somebody who can be Nobel Prize winner, or a very simple-minded guy who went only six years to school, like the brain looked the same. It's actually fascinating. Brain looks the same. You don't see if somebody is intelligent or not. So, and, but it's such a beautiful organ uh, that you, you have to, you have to take good care of your, your brain for sure. And, and I think the worst thing you can do to your brain is really, um, don't, uh, don't, The alcohol is very, very bad for the brain. Alcohol is very bad, bad. And, and if the brain doesn't get enough oxygen because you're smoking or you, you know, don't take care of the, your vascular system, your vessels. So you have narrowing of your, of your um, vessels leading towards the brain. 
this you can see if if you do surgery on those brains you see it it's it's uh, it's it's um very clear that the function of this brain is n- is not the same than the function of a healthy brain so yeah alcohol smoking is very very bad for the brain people don't think about it that way do they they think about it if if it's bad for you they think about it they think about, yeah. they think about their body and then their their head are two like yeah. separate things yeah as long as you function right you think like my brain is okay Right. That, that's the problem. If, 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 if you can't breathe anymore because you have like lung problems from, from, from smoking, you feel it. You feel it. Right. Yeah. But, um, with the brain, you, when you feel it, it's kind of late. Right. And then there's no reverse. Right. Thank you so much, Dr. Florian. This is fascinating. Most welcome. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.